From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Alec Baldwin is charged with involuntary manslaughter in the deadly Rust film set shooting. Hollywood continues its love-hate relationship with guns and modeling bad gun-handling behavior in TV and movies. And what do you think about the Houston Taqueria self-defense shooting? Did the armed defender get it right? That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Morse, author of the Slow Facts blog and co-host of the Polite Society podcast. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Well, Dean, thank you for having me back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. And I'm sure that you agree with me that, you know, here we are in a new year, but, you know, everything that's old is new again, right? I mean, it's <laughs> the same, same kind of stuff is going on this year that's gone on previously. You know, one thing that's popped up in the news just recently is this story about Alec Baldwin, and he's being charged with involuntary manslaughter along with the armorer right. and this yes. movie that they were shooting. I've been following this pretty closely he was in this film and apparently shot somebody. So now, you know, he's being charged. He and the armorer are facing about a total of six and a half years in jail, plus a fine, for involuntary manslaughter. The district attorney said that this case comes down to negligence, which I think is probably the case. She said the movie had a very, and this is a quote, fast and loose set she said that Baldwin should have checked the gun before the scene started because yep. he, he pulled a gun out of a holster and aimed it and uh, shot the cinematographer. And she noted that people had actually complained about safety issues on the set in the days before the tragedy. And I've read that people actually walked off the set. So there was some bad stuff going on here. Now, Baldwin has denied that he's responsible. He's even denied pulling the trigger. And Baldwin's attorney came out with a statement and said, Mr. Baldwin had no reason to believe that there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere in the movie set. He relied on the professionals with whom he worked who assured him the gun did not have live rounds. Now, Rob, this whole story is just one hot mess. What's your take on this shooting on the Rust movie set? I don't think we've we, we've heard... Uh, distortions of the truth. I don't know that we've reached clear lies yet. Alec Baldwin is in a horrible position in, in a number of respects. One is that he was not only an actor, he was the producer of this movie. He was both, if you will, an employee in front of the camera and management directing how this movie was taking place as it was manufactured. That leaves him no place to hide. It's it's hard for him to go, oh, it's not my fault, it's my boss's fault. Does that make sense, Dean, for, for yeah. starters? Yeah. Yeah. He was he was a 
producer. Now, I don't know if he was producer, executive producer. Those titles kind of mean different things. I, I think he, he was part of the financing, which usually means you're executive producer. Whether he was the actual producer, again, I, I'm not sure about whether we have all the facts straight, but it was his production one way or the other. He was, he's, it's been reported that he was in charge. So yes, what you're saying I think is accurate. And the armorer asked to do more training with Baldwin. So we have the armorer as an employee asking her supervisor, I need Baldwin, the actor, to do more training with me because I'm concerned about his firearms safety. And her supervisor, now we don't know whether the supervisor said no or Baldwin said no, but she asked for more safety training with Baldwin and that was denied. There's, a, there's another aspect in which Baldwin is in a tough spot. He's an actor. He's shown us characters that appeared to have uh, more than conversational awareness of what firearms are, what they do, and how they work. Well, he's going to sit there in front of a jury and say, all that was made up. I didn't know nothing. I don't know that. I don't know that. And now he's, a, he's probably going to be a great witness. He can convince uh, jurors of a lot of things. I don't know that he can convince the jurors that he was that stupid. Well, now, just so everyone is clear about what happened here, you know, Baldwin was filming a movie. It was called Rust. It's a Western. And he was rehearsing a scene where he had a single-action revolver, and it was supposedly in a holster, like in a, like a shoulder-type holster. Right. He pulled it out, aimed it toward the camera, or specifically toward the cinematographer for whatever reason, and the gun, as Baldwin would say, went off, and it, it not only killed the cinematographer, but it wounded the director. So it you know went through one person, hit another person. So Baldwin says he didn't pull the trigger, I which is which, which is what's false. In, what's interesting here is I don't even think the gun was supposed to be fired in that take. Well, I mean that's you know that those are the kind of facts that. I'm not sure it's really come out yet. All I know is they had this little video reenactment where they showed what they believed happened based on, you know, what everyone said. He says he didn't pull the trigger, but that's obviously false because everyone listening to this probably knows what a single-action revolver is and how it works. You have to cock the hammer, and then you have to pull the trigger. The uh, trigger, it's called a single-action because the trigger only does one thing. It releases the hammer. If you right. just pull the trigger, it doesn't work. And so my guess, and that that's all this is, is that when he pulled the single-action revolver out of the holster, he had his finger on the trigger. Yes. And then he pulled back the hammer, and, went, and it went off. If you've seen Westerns where they're fanning, right, right, what they call fanning, they're, they're waving their hand over the top of the gun, pulling back the hammer very quickly and shooting, that's what they're doing. They're holding down the trigger and they're shooting off the five or six rounds that are uh, in the in the firearm. So I, I, I'm just guessing, I think that's what happened. But clearly, Baldwin is either lying or he just doesn't know anything about guns because, you know, he's saying that he didn't pull the trigger. He did say he pulled the hammer back and it just went off. So I, I, I'm not sure, again, whether he just, he's just ignorant or whether he's lying. And and again, he is 
he has played so many characters that have handled so many guns in movies that the prosecution can say, you handled the gun here, were you trained? You handled the gun here, were you trained? Over and over and over and over. And he has to say, no, I was never shown anything. I don't know how any of that happened. Now, there are lots of other actors who said, look, there are rules on set. You're trained. You only act within the scope of your training. In, in that sense, it's exactly like civilians who provide emergency medical training. You only act within what you've been instructed to do. If someone says, here, go do this with a gun, and the actor says, I'd like to, I can't, I haven't been trained how, when can we set up that training? That appears to be what Mr. Baldwin refused to do. Yeah, my impression is that there's no universal set of safety rules on movie sets. You know, to listen to some of the people I've seen in some of the news programs I've watched, they'll talk about what they do on set, and it sounds pretty reasonable. I hear others where it sounds like the armorer alone is responsible for safety. And that's kind of ridiculous if that's the way it was working on this set, because, look, if you're doing a dangerous stunt, for example— you have to be trained to do the stunt, and everyone around you has to be trained. It's not just some guy standing off to the side who does the safety and everyone else is ignorant, right? right. So uh, why would it be any different for firearms? You know, there ought to be a universal set of rules very similar to what you and I have to follow when we're on a range and when we're doing, you know, a class or whatever. I know that there was once I was at Tactical Defense Institute and the lesson this particular time was we were supposed to, to see what it was like to point a gun at somebody else. I had never done that before. And so what they did was first we had to make sure the, the firearm was unloaded. We had to rope the gun, which means yep. there was a, uh, like a yellow rope going from front to back. Clearly, it could not fire. And then three separate instructors came by. Each of them eyeballed it and touched it and made sure that, th that it was completely safe. So not only did I know it was safe, but three other individuals checked it as well. Now, why couldn't you do something like that on a movie set, where if you're going to, like if Baldwin was handling this firearm, it could have, been, could have been loaded in his presence so that he sees it, he sees that there's no live ammo, he sees how many rounds are loaded, and the, you know those who are observing that continue to observe him just like range safety officers keep their eyes on people on the range, right? Let, let's go farther. And I think the reason there are no universal safety rules is because Hollywood is play acting. We don't need, in, in most movies, there doesn't need to be a live round anywhere on the set. That's not how cameras are going to be shot. In this case... We didn't even a need a bunch of smoke to come out of it. So not even a not a dummy round. What are they called? Sometimes they just call them dummy rounds or they have other terms for them, depending on whether that's going to fire something or not. My understanding was, I mean, it's a revolver, so the slide does not have to activate, right? I mean, it, right. Just, it just needs to make a bang, maybe a little fire. The, these uh, these could have been inert rounds. They didn't yeah. even have to be blanks because I believe the— director of photography, uh, the cameraman, all of them were so close. You would not even load a firearm with blanks at that distance. I've seen, uh, this was the B-roll, where somebody pointed a gun 
quote, at a camera and fired the trigger, they were pointing at a mirror. The camera was way back next to the, the person doing the shooting. So there was no danger of shooting the camera or the camera. And there, and there was no reason to point it at anyone because even if you're using film these days, there's always a digital component. Very often directors are, you know, far away from the camera and they're watching a monitor. Right. And so, you know, it's very easy to set these things up where you don't have to have somebody actually standing behind the camera. Now, this was a cinematographer. So a cinematographer, unlike the director, is actually hands-on in the camera. Right. But it would be easy enough to set it up if it were just a static shot. And then they step aside and then Baldwin would do what he needs to do. There's, there's really no reason to point a gun, especially if it's a real gun, at anybody ever. Right. I, I, there, just, I just don't... There just, is no cinema... There is no cinematic reason right. to point a, a live firearm at another human person on set. doesn't exist. There are ways around it. You know it. I know it. They know it very well. Somebody cut a corner. And now we're going to, the courts are going to look as to who that is. I think that's what it's going to come down to, Rob, because all the evidence seems to indicate this was a very young armorer. She didn't have a lot of experience, so probably she was cheap. And I understand that this was a very cheap production. They didn't have a lot of money. They were trying to work fast. And I saw a picture, if this was accurate, of like a little cart that had some of the guns and ammo and other stuff just piled on it. I didn't see anything locked up. I didn't see anything safe. I mean, it it looked like a mess. It really did. So I, I think that they just weren't following even basic rules of safety on this set. And as for why there are live rounds... I'll bet you a hundred bucks right now, Rob. I know what was going on between takes, or you know, at the end of the day, beginning of the day, they were out. They were out plinking. They were shooting. Yep. They were having fun. That's we've why heard, there were live rounds. So somebody's live. We've, we've heard reports of that that people were shooting yeah. those prop firearms. Prop on. Uh, there were live guns on the set. That was a fault right there. Now, Dean, you're right. They said that the armorer was inexperienced. That doesn't necessarily mean she wasn't knowledgeable about the technical aspects of firearms. That's a separate issue. She may have not had the human experience yet that said, if you were shooting live firearms on this set, I quit. That's not allowed. Tell me you're going to back me up. You're going to fire anybody that does that, regardless of who they are. Let's let's make that announcement because I bet you're right, Dean. Someone was planking. What's the harm? Someone was emptying guns. Guns, they introduced live rounds into a set where they didn't think they would ever have live rounds for any purpose, and now somebody got killed. Yeah, I think when all the facts come out, certainly uh, Alec Baldwin legally Bears responsibility because of his position. He should have known better. He, you know, I heard that he's pretty obstinate. He was distracted during the training, so you know he bears responsibility. But I think it's going to come down to that armorer. They were screwing around with the guns. They were shooting stuff. I think she's lying. And oh. they had they had live rounds on the set, and because they're they're they weren't being as strict as they should have. For a variety of reasons, I think it ultimately comes down to her. But the charges seem to be equal between the two of them. So we'll see how this thing develops. I, I mean, I'm really fascinated by this, but I hope it 
leads to some changes in Hollywood because we know that if we were on a shooting range and something terrible happened, all of us would re-examine the rules and how they handled it, what can we do differently. Everybody would adapt, and you wouldn't even have to ask people to do that. They would just automatically do it because what a lot of people don't understand is we're we're all just nuts about safety. And I'm not sure that's the case in the movie business, unfortunately, Rob. Um, it, yes, we, we're pretty sure it's not the case. Now, when we talk about training and safety, this isn't an elaborate stunt we're talking about. These are the basic firearm safety rules that we teach to millions of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. This is what every new shooter learns when they go take their basic firearms safety class at the local gun range. Yeah, keep your it's, keep your finger off the trigger. Don't point it at anything you don't want to destroy. I mean, it's it's simple stuff. It doesn't matter what gun it is. Treat the firearm as loaded unless you've immediately verified that it's safe. Yeah. Right. This is not rocket science. So, Hollywood. Let's talk about Hollywood a little more. Okay. You know, uh, I'm I'm a big movie fan. I mean, I've grown up watching TV and movies. I try not to be too hard um, on, you know, the folks who are making movies. But Hollywood obviously has sort of a love-hate relationship with guns, right? I mean, they love to fill TV shows and movies with guns, tons of violence, but they claim to hate guns in real life. And it does seem that a lot of folks in the entertainment business, like Alec Baldwin, I think, who appears to know very little about firearms in real life, if everything you know about guns comes from watching TV and movies, you probably think that everyone has full auto, right? Criminals are running around, (laughs) shooting full auto guns all the time. Nobody uses a holster except a cop, and even then, often not. You probably think that you fly across the room when you're shot. Bullets can't penetrate car doors and windows. They just bounce off. Guns almost never run out of ammo. And if they do, you throw the gun away. Right? You don't reload it. Yeah. You just throw it away. Rob, oh, look, I know it's all just fantasy and we shouldn't expect make-believe to be like real life, but it is hard, for me at least, to get past all the nonsense about guns in Hollywood. So let me just ask you straight up, do you have a pet peeve about guns in, in TV and movies, something that really bugs you? Um, the, the, uh, no, the same one that you have. But I, but I throw part of that on me as being a bad consumer. You and I like drama as much as the next person. Sword fights are supposed to have big swinging swords, where in, sta- in fact, how swords work is you stab people. Guns are supposed to have lots of muzzle flash and people throw themselves so they can be seen by a camera. Whereas, in fact, gunfights, if, if you're smart about it, you don't want anybody to see more than maybe the corner of your face and a muzzle barrel. There's nothing to see on camera because you don't want to get shot. So we're confusing theater, which is done for dramatic effect with reality. Yeah, I'm, I'm as guilty of that as the next guy. Where I see it particularly is with my students. I'll say, you know, you've got a class of newbies. You go, what do you think about guns? How do they work? And what you get is their parroting of what they've seen in the movies. Well, Rob, you know, people do learn from what they see in entertainment, even though that's not the purpose of movies or TVs. You know, people pick stuff up and, and they do learn things. 
And Hollywood knows this. You know, that's why there's controversy about characters who are shown smoking in movies. You know, there are a lot of people who right. would prefer that there's just no smoking at all because they think, well, you're modeling bad behavior. So wouldn't you think that they would want to model good behavior about using guns like using a proper holster, keeping your finger off the trigger, or holding the gun properly, and so on? Dean, there are some actors who were members of the NRA board of directors, not two that we can think of. If they saw a firearm mishandled, they'd say, okay, stop, guys. Typically, not when the camera's rolling. Said, I don't know if somebody showed you or not. This is how it's done. Please don't do this because it's dangerous. It makes me nervous, even if this is a prop gun. We're not going to do it that way on set. So, yes, they established safe protocols because they knew better. On the other hand, there are directors of photography who go, ah, good enough. It looks good. That's all we care about. Yeah. My, my favorite, though, because I like the old World War II movies, and yeah. what I've discovered is if you're shot, you don't fly, fly across the battlefield, but you do have to raise your arms. You're shot. You <laughs> raise your arms, and then you fall down. Now, the reason, you know, there are Hollywood reasons for that. How do you tell they're shot? Well, you call attention to yourself by throwing up your arms. You know, it looks like you're in pain. So there, you know, there are different rules, I guess, when you're making films. But you're absolutely right. If I were doing a movie, I would make everyone take training, whether the gun was real or fake. It would look better on camera, and it would be safer for everybody. And you'd think that the unions, because they're, uh, it's a very union town in Hollywood, right? You'd think the unions would say, look, here are the rules. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. And if you violate these rules— you're in trouble. You get sanctioned for it. Right. They, do, they do this for other things to protect their members. You would think that they would do it for this, and maybe they are. Maybe this is happening quietly behind the scenes. Um, it, it may. There are a lot of union rules of which firearm safety is barely scratching the surface. Because of the expense of following all of them, a lot of movie production has left California. In fact, most of it has. Um, I think that was the attraction of this site, was that it was, I think it was a non-union shop. I, I haven't read that. But, I, but you know, there's so much being filmed now. You know, Georgia uh, is a big place for, for making movie and TVs now. Toronto, England, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, it's gone all over the place. And you're right. And a lot of it's about cost. And I think it boiled down to two things in this case. Cost and the, the folks who were handling the firearms were having some fun on the side. And I think we're going to find out, my prediction, that they were lying about it. They were, they were shooting, they were plinking. And if anyone would have known about it, it would have been that armorer. So, Rob, let's turn from fantasy to reality and talk about this Texas restaurant shooting. And uh, just, just a note to our listeners, we've been having some technical issues, and Rob is now on the phone uh, we were talking over <laughs> over the internet, but Rob, your your router keeps uh, pooping out on you. I think you're going to be router shopping this weekend. But uh, but uh, as let's, soon as I hang up with you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's actually, Dean. We had to search hard to see the unedited versions of the security video. Um, a a criminal, convicted criminal with a record, came in was waving a gun around, robbing people, 
he walked past one of the customers. Customer, you know, threw his wallet on the ground. And when the criminal passed, the customer shot the robber from behind. Nobody said you had to play fair. He shot him several times. The criminal fell. Then the defender got up and continued to shoot as he advanced. Now, you could say, wait a minute, the criminal was going away. Actually, the criminal was walking toward another customer while the criminal still had a gun in his hand. When the, when the criminal fell, had he, was, was he stopped? Was he clearly disarmed? I don't know. That's what's going to be de- decided by a district attorney and perhaps a grand jury. Well, my understanding is that this case has gone to a grand jury, but you know, local authorities have made statements pretty clearly, and I'm talking about not only local law enforcement, but the prosecutor as well. They've come right out and said, look, under Texas law, you can not only defend yourself, but you can defend property. And there are special cases where if there's armed robbery, someone committing a robbery with a firearm, that there is the presumption that you can use lethal force. So, you know, we got to remember this is not this is not Maine, this is not New York, this is not California, this is Texas. And so yes, what, what we saw, right. you know, was uh, that was that was the way sometimes it goes down in Texas. Um, we're talking about those distinctions that you made are accurate. They reflect when we can start shooting. You can defend property in Texas. Got it. I think in every case, we need to stop when there is no longer a threat to uh, life or great bodily injury. When this guy's down, face down, unmoving, and you walk up and you shoot him again, that's questionable. You could argue, and a defense attorney will, hi, my client killed his attacker. He had every right to do that. Now we can question whether he shot a dead man and whether that was appropriate. But that's the nature of the of the question. I don't want to be either that, the prosecutor, the defender, or on that jury. Yeah. And I, and I find this case interesting because it shows how self-defense isn't always by the book, you know, the way that we're, that we're taught. The patron waited until the robber appeared to be walking out of the restaurant. That's what a lot of people have said. To, to my eye, it seemed like that. Yes, there was somebody else near the door, but it looked like he had already gotten everybody's money. It, you know, it, it appeared that he was shot from behind, and yeah, that's kind of a holdover from Westerns that you only shoot somebody when you're standing in front of them and that sort of thing. He shoots him apparently one final time after the robber was on the ground, he actually moves the body, roots around in his pockets, getting the money back out, and then he leaves the scene. And the right. gun, the gun apparently was fake. So yeah. it's, it's not if you're an attorney, you don't have a clean set of facts the way you would hope for, but this is real life. And things don't always go by the book. Right, Rob? Right. Too often they don't. Now, that's why we ask our Students, that's why it's best practice. Hey, I just shot someone. There are going to be questions. We want there to be questions when a life is taken. I've got a lot of witnesses. Folks, please, all of you, would you call 911? I'm going to call 911. 
because that's what good guys do. I was confident in what I did. I know I stayed within the law. Perhaps this person wasn't confident of what they did and they fled. That's a mistake. We want to, if you're going to carry a gun, that's the, that's the weak side of constitutional carry. You can now carry a firearm before you have enough training to know what's within the law. So I think that this case brings up a lot of really interesting questions. Now, just to be clear, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate with some of this. Right. I think that I think that more or less the guy had a right to shoot because there there was a person, you know, running around this restaurant waving what appeared to be a gun. He could have shot anybody at any time. So there was a threat. You know, he yep. didn't follow all the rules, you know, right down to the letter. But let's just work through some questions, Rob, because I'm interested in, in what you think here. One sure. of the things that I noticed when I watched that that video, why did the patron, the guy who was sitting down and eventually shot the robber, why did he wait so long to draw his weapon? It seemed like he was rooting around trying to get to it. He waited almost until it appeared the guy was ready to leave the restaurant. Do you think there was a tactical reason he waited so long? Or, or what was that about? Why didn't he shoot immediately when this guy came in and started waving his gun around? There's something called tactical patience. We want to avoid a gunfight where bullets are flying in both directions. If that means we throw our keys on the ground, we throw our wallet on the ground, we drop our watch and we back up, and now a robber has to put a tuck a gun under his arm and because he's got both hands full, that would be a better time to draw than when the robber's pointing a gun at us. So this robber, I'm sure, was giving verbal commands, verbal threats. He'd walked all around the restaurant several times, first to threaten, then to collect money. People, some of the patrons hid under the table and just threw out threw money onto the floor. The, the, the armed defender threw his wallet out. He waited until he had an opportunity to present his firearm when a gun wasn't pointed at him. That's not cowardice. That's just smart. So here's another question, Rob. Uh, why didn't he just let the guy leave? Once it appeared that he had the money, it appeared, and, and I can't tell from the video, but it appeared he was walking toward the door. At that point, could he have just let the guy walk out? What he could have done is anything. What you're asking for is a guarantee where there are no guarantees. This robber walked toward the door many times because there were customers near the door that he was robbing. How do we know that he was leaving this time? We don't. We'd like there to be guarantees. We'd like this agreement. Hey, I'll give you the money. You'll leave. Except we've seen clerks and customers shot when they thought that agreement was in place. And we're asking a robber who breaks with the rules and the laws to follow rules and laws, and they don't do that. Yeah, and, and there's an example actually from uh, up here in Columbus. I remember years ago seeing in the news there was a story about a guy who robbed one of these drive-through marts, you know, where you, you drive in and you order through the window, you know, to get beer or chips or whatever. He had robbed the place, made everybody sit on the ground. He left, closed the door. He was gone. And then he came back in and shot people and wow. then, then left and then left. 
So, I mean, that always sticks with me. You know, you never, you're right. You never know what's going to happen. Here's a question for you, Rob. Should he have disturbed the body? I mean, that's tampering with evidence. He actually pulled the, pulled the guy's body away from the door, rooted through his pockets, got the money, got the wallets, divvied it up with everybody. Should he have done that or just left him alone? He should not have done that. You're absolutely right. That's, that's tampering with evidence. We want to wear the mantle of innocence. We used a lethal tool because that was the safest thing we could possibly do. We were faced, innocent people, you and I, our neighbors, our family, our friends, were facing a threat that was so great that taking another life was the safest thing we could do. That doesn't give us the right to go through people's pockets now. If we pick up the gun and we notice that it's plastic and fake, I can understand reacting with anger. Entirely understandable. The law doesn't expect us to be a machine. You shoot someone, they fall, and the law recognizes that it takes time to recognize that that person is no longer a threat. They don't, the law does not expect an instantaneous response, but it does us, but it does expect us to be aware that when this person is no longer a threat, we need to stop shooting. And then the big one, I think, he left the scene. And everybody just left the scene. They got their money. Yeah. There's video of, of him getting into a truck outside. They just all drive away. Yes. And there's and they do it while people while security video is videoing them leaving. The owner called the guy a hero. The owner didn't speak English. I suspect a lot of people there didn't speak English. That may mean either that they were part of the Hispanic culture in Texas and had never learned English. They were older. Many of them appeared to be. Or they were recent immigrants, perhaps illegal immigrants, who were not familiar with our legal system. They were reacting as they'd learned to react in other countries, perhaps. So, Rob, I think I know the answer to these questions and what you're going to think. Does it matter that he shot the robber in the back, or does it matter that he shot nine times rather than three or four times? Where he shot the robber might matter. If the ro- if, if, when we say where, you know, you know that joke. Um, uh, we ask where, and we mean on what part of the body. And someone else asks the question where, and they mean was the robber running down the street? So, and was he facing the door? As long as he was still within the building with a firearm in his hand, he was a lethal threat to other innocent parties. Um, You can shoot him until he is no longer a threat and you realize that. We tell lots of people, oh, you've got severe arthritis. You've had surgery. You need to shoot a 22 for armed defense. Bring ammunition and plan to shoot more than once. You need to pay attention to when your firearm, when your bullet impacts are finally effective and your attacker decides to leave or can no, is incapacitated and can no longer carry the fight to you. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that's um, that's pretty much what I think. Uh, you know, a threat's a threat. We get, and we were talking about movies. This is a lot of stuff that we get from movies, right? Because in Westerns, you shoot someone in the back. Well, you're obviously guilty of murder because if you're going to shoot someone... You're supposed to stand in the middle of the street and, and have a shootout. And you know, a, lot, a lot of our cultural understanding comes from movies. Yeah. I, I, you know that 
in my uh, uh, podcasts, I cover recent self-defense events. In one case, a son is called to his mom's house. He sees somebody break in. That person breaks in. and Now, the son is in contact with his mom, and he turns toward the bedroom where she's hiding. The attacker turns toward that room. The son shot, said, hey, stop, get out. The son shot the intruder from behind. It wasn't because he was being threatened. It's because the son knew he was moving toward where his mom was hiding. So there's a threat. You know, you and I have rules that we think apply. We wouldn't shoot someone in the back. If they're threatening an innocent person, we might. It's, it's, it's so much not like Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Hollywood is not real life. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's entertainment, folks. Do not believe anything. I mean, and I'm still amazed, Rob, going back to our former discussion, I see people holding firearms and they're still doing the cup and saucer or they're, right. they're, they're like holding the, their, um, their wrist. Yeah. You know, I mean, Clint Eastwood did that back in the seventies. Well, I guess I can excuse that in the seventies, but when you still see that today, I gotta wonder who do they hire to be the armorer or the consultant on that movie that they'll let them get away with stuff like that. So I don't, I don't think they worry about details like that being yeah. just doesn't even occur to them. Well, Rob, all of this is really interesting, uh, interesting stuff. I know you were fighting with your computer to try to stay connected. We worked it out. It was an interesting conversation regardless. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can read your articles and listen to your podcasts? My articles are at slowfacts.wordpress.com. From there, they're often picked up and carried at Ammo Land Shooting Sports News. I put out a weekly podcast called Self-Defense Gun Stories. 20 minutes, a little snack food of a podcast. I'm also on the Polite Society podcast once a week. That runs 90 minutes. Well, Rob, it's always fascinating. I always like to know what you think about the news. Uh, your your articles are great. I I uh, recommend that everyone read your stuff and listen to your podcast. So, Rob, thank you. Uh, thanks for your patience and hanging in there with all the technical issues. And we'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure, Dean. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's JoinBFA.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.